My dear brothers and sisters, first, let me affirm my belief in the words of Nephi. I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded, for I know that the Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way that they may accomplish the thing which he commandeth them. Without this belief, there would be no way to accept the awesome responsibility to serve as Relief Society General President. I acknowledge with deep gratitude the magnificent women who have preceded me in this call, women like Sister Barbara Winder. I am grateful for her influence in my life. In my prayers each day, I give thanks for the influence of many good people around me, for friends, for caring neighbors, for the young women office staff, Sister Jane Malin, and the board members with whom I have a close and cherished relationship. I feel the love and the great strength that comes from my four sons and their families. I appreciate their candor and good humor. In fact, I can hear them now on both coasts watching this broadcast and saying, My mother? Oh, sure. <laughs> Yesterday I was telling our oldest son that President Monson had said that I might be called on for a few remarks today. President Monson had said, We don't want you to preach a sermon. Dave replied, Mom, that's what we've been telling you for years. <laughs> I'm grateful that they have the desire to do what's right. I give thanks for my sister, who is my friend. Blessed is she who has one like her, and thrice blessed if more than one. Sister Ardeth Cap is like a sister to me. I pay tribute to her as a great woman of vision, called by the Lord to lead the young women of the world at a most critical time. She has tutored me, encouraged me, and allowed me to grow. I have served happily as a counselor in the Young Women Organization. I love you, young women. I know that you are understanding the importance of the young women values, those gospel principles which help prepare, to prepare you to make and keep sacred covenants. No one who is as committed to home and family and personal growth as I could serve in this calling without the love and support of a husband who is devoted to the gospel. Joe is devoted, and he brings great strength and stability into my life. I know that Ezra Taft Benson is a prophet of God. I will follow his counsel and the counsel of those brethren who have been called to serve with him. I know that Jesus is the Christ and that he will direct my path if I make myself worthy of his guidance. I believe that the women of the Church have a unique contribution to make. In the words of a modern-day prophet, much of the major growth that is coming to the Church in the last days will happen to the degree that the women of the Church reflect righteousness and articulateness in their lives, and to the degree that they are seen as distinct and different in happy ways from the women of the world. This is a joyous gospel. My counselors and I look forward eagerly to serving. And we want to serve in a way that will help women everywhere contribute to the great forward movement of the Church. I know, in the strength of the Lord, we can do all things required of us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. In the closing moments of this conference, I come to this pulpit to speak about gratitude as an expression of faith and as a saving principle. The Lord has said, And in nothing doth man offend God, or against none is his wrath kindled, 
save those who confess not his hand in all things and obey not his commandments. It is clear to me from this scripture that to thank the Lord thy God in all things is more than a social courtesy. It is a binding commandment. One of the advantages of having lived a long time is that you can often remember when you had it worse. <laughs> I am grateful to have lived long enough to have known some of the blessings of adversity. My memory goes back to the Great Depression when we had certain values burned into our souls. One of these values was gratitude for that which we had because we had so little. We had to learn provident living in order to survive. Rather than create in us a spirit of envy or anger for what we did not have, many developed a spirit of gratitude for the meager, simple things with which we were blessed, like hot homemade bread and oatmeal cereal and many other things. As I as another example, I remember my beloved grandmother, Mary Carolyn Roper Finlinson, making handmade soap on the farm. Her recipe for handmade soap included rendered animal fat, a small portion of lye as a cleansing agent, and wood ashes as an abrasive. The soap had a very pungent aroma and was almost as hard as a brick. There was no money to buy soft, sweet-smelling soap. On the farm, there were many dusty, sweat-laden clothes to be washed and many bodies that needed desperately a Saturday night bath. If you had to bathe in that homemade soap, you could become wonderfully clean, but you smelled worse after bathing than before. <laughs> Since I use soap more now than I did as a child, I have developed a daily appreciation for mild, sweet-scented soap. <laughs> One of the evils of our time is taking for granted so many of the things we enjoy. This was spoken of by the Lord. For what doth it profit a man if a gift is bestowed upon him, and he receive not the gift? The Apostle Paul described our day to Timothy when he wrote that in the last days, Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. These sins are fellow travelers, and ingratitude makes one susceptible to all of them. The story of the thankful Samaritan has great meaning. As the Savior went through Samaria and Galilee, he entered into a certain village and there met him ten men that were lepers, and who lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Jesus told them to go and show themselves unto the priest. And it came to pass, as, the, as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, and with a loud voice glorified God, and fell down at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, 
Thy faith hath made thee whole. Leprosy was so loathsome a disease that those afflicted were not permitted under the law to come close to Jesus. Those suffering from this terrible disease were required to agonize together, sharing their common misery. Their forlorn cry, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us, must have touched the Savior's heart. When they were healed and when they had received priestly approval that they were clean and acceptable in society, they must have been overcome with joy and amazement. Having received so great a miracle, they, completely, they seemed completely satisfied, but they forgot their benefactor. It is difficult to understand why they were so lacking in gratitude. Such ingratitude is self-centered. It is a form of pride. What is the significance of the fact that the one who returned to give thanks was a Samaritan? As in the story of the Good Samaritan, the point seems to be that those of lesser social or economic status often rise to a greater duty and nobility. In addition to personal gratitude as a saving principle, I should like to express a feeling for the gratitude we ought to have for the many blessings we enjoy. Those of you who have joined the Church in this generation have acquired fellowship with a people, many of whom have a great heritage of suffering and sacrifice. Such sacrifice becomes your heritage also, for it is the inheritance of a people who have faults and imperfections, but have a great nobility of purpose. That purpose is to help all mankind come to a sweet, peaceful understanding about who they are and to foster a love for their fellow men and a determination to keep the commandments of God. This is the gospel's holy call. It is the essence of our worship. Without question, we need to be informed of the happenings of the world, but modern communication brings into our homes a drowning cascade of the violence and misery of the worldwide human race. There comes a time when we need to find some peaceful spiritual renewal. I acknowledge with great gratitude the peace and the contentment we can find for ourselves in the spiritual cocoons of our homes, our sacrament meetings, and in our holy temples. In these peaceful environments, our souls are rested. We have the feeling of having come home. Some time ago, we were in the kingdom of Tonga. A family home naming with music and spoken word was arranged by President Moody and his counselors in the state center. The home evening was in honor of His Majesty King Tupo IV, the reigning monarch of Tonga. The king, his daughter, and granddaughters graciously attended, as did many of the nobles and diplomatic representatives in Tonga. Our members put on a superb program of song and verse. One of the king's granddaughters sang a little solo entitled, How Much I Love My Grandfather. Elder Sonnenberg and I were invited to respond briefly, which we were pleased to do. After the program was over, the king ignored the usual royal protocol and came over to graciously greet us and our wives as an expression of appreciation for the performance of his subjects who were the members of the church. 
Social protocol is observed in many places, but the expression of kindness is universally appropriate. It seems as though there is a tug-of-war between opposing character traits that leaves no voids in our souls. As gratitude is absent or disappears, rebellion often enters and fills the vacuum. I do not speak of rebellion against civil oppression. I refer to rebellion against moral cleanliness, beauty, decency, honesty, reverence, and respect for parental authority. A grateful heart is a beginning of greatness. It is an expression of humility. It is a foundation for the development of such virtues as prayer, faith, courage, contentment, happiness, love, and well-being. But there is a truism associated with all types of human strength. Use it or lose it. When not used, muscles weaken, skills deteriorate, and faith disappears. President Thomas S. Monson stated, think to thank. In these three words are the finest capsule course for a happy marriage, a formula for enduring friendship, and a pattern for personal happiness. Said the Lord, and he who receiveth all things with thankfulness shall be made glorious, and the things of the earth shall be added unto him, even an hundredfold, yea, more. I am grateful for people on the earth who love and appreciate little children. Last year I found myself late at night on an airplane bulging with passengers, growing north from Mexico City to Culiacan. The seats in the plane were close together, and every seat was taken, mostly by the gracious people of Mexico. Everywhere inside the plane there were packages and carry-on luggage of all sizes. A young woman came down the aisle with four small children, the oldest of which appeared to be about four and the youngest a newborn. She was also trying to manage a diaper bag and a stroller and some other bags. The children were tired, crying, and fussing. As she found her seat in the airplane, the passengers around her, both men and women, literally sprang to her aid. Soon the children were being lovingly and tenderly comforted and cared for by their passengers. They were passed from one passenger to another, all over the airplane. <laughs> the result was an airplane full of babysitters. The children settled down in the caring arms of those who cradled them and before long went to sleep. Most remarkable was that a few men who were obviously fathers and grandfathers tenderly cradled and caressed the newborn child without any false macho pride. The mother was freed from the care of her children most of the flight. The only thing that I felt badly about was that no one passed the baby to me. I relearned that appreciation for and thoughtfulness and kindness to little children is an expression of the Savior's love for them. How can we pay our debt of gratitude for the heritage of faith demonstrated by pioneers in many lands across the earth who struggled and sacrificed so that the gospel might take root? How is thankfulness expressed for the intrepid handcart pioneers who by their own brute strength pulled their meager belongings in handcarts across the scorching plains and through the snows of the high mountain passes 
to escape persecution and find peaceful worship in these valleys. How can the debt of gratitude possibly be paid by the descendants of the Martin and the Willie and the other handcart companies for the faith of their forebears? One of these intrepid souls was Emma Batchelor, a young English girl traveling without family. She started out with the Willie Handcart Company, but by the time they reached Fort Laramie, they were ordered to lighten their loads. Emma was directed to leave the copper kettle in which she carried all of her belongings. She refused to do this and set it by the side of the road and sat down on it. She knew that the Martin Company was only a few days behind. She had been privileged to start with the Willie Company, and when the Martin Company caught up, she joined the Paul Gourley family. A young son wrote many years later, here we were joined by Sister Emma Batchelor. We were glad to have her because she was young and strong and meant more flour for our mess. It was here that Sister Gurley gave birth to a child, and Emma acted as the midwife and loaded the mother and the child in the cart for two days, which Emma helped pull. Those who died in the Martin Company were mercifully relieved of the suffering of others with frozen feet, ears, noses, or fingers, which maimed them for the rest of their lives. Emma, age 21, however, was a fortunate one. She came through the ordeal whole. Year later, she met Brigham Young, who was surprised that she was not maimed, and she told him, Brother Brigham, I had no one to care for me or to look out for me, so I decided I must look out for myself. I was the one who called out when Brother Savage warned us not to go. I was at fault in that, but I tried to make up for it. I pulled my share at the cart every day. When we came to a stream, I stopped and took off my shoes and stockings and outer skirt and put them on top of the cart. Then after I got the cart across, I came back and carried little Paul over on my back. Then I sat down and scrubbed my feet hard with my woolen neckerchief and put on dry shoes and stockings. The descendants of these pioneers can partially settle the account by being true to the cause for which their ancestors suffered so much to be part of. As with all commandments, gratitude is a description of a successful mode of living the thankful heart opens our eyes to a multitude of blessings that continually surround us. President J. Reuben Clark said, Hold fast to the blessings which God has provided you. Yours is not the task to gain them. They are here. Yours is the part of cherishing them. As we come to the close of this great conference, I hope that we may cultivate grateful hearts so that we may cherish the multitude of blessings that God has so graciously bestowed. Such gratitude to our Heavenly Father and our fellow men, I pray in the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. My brothers and sisters, 
I'm mindful that there are many who are struggling with faith <clears throat> and testimony. Some have even laid aside celestial pursuits because of weariness in the battle. I pray that I might be guided in my efforts to help. Some 30 or 40 years before the birth of the Savior, a wise father called his sons together and gave them counsel. His name was Helaman. His sons were Nephi and Lehi. He said to them, And now, my sons, remember, remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation, that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down. Simply stated, he told his sons if they would pursue the course and gain a testimony of the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ, there would be no test or trial come to them in life that they could not conquer. As we pursue the building of this sure foundation, I am fearful that some of us may have lost sight of our divine responsibility to nurture each other in this process. It is a fact that at times we can force, coerce, or intimidate individuals into obedience. There are even times when we are somewhat successful in manipulating the human mind. We do not, however, have the capacity to force matters of the heart. We cannot force love and respect and admiration. We cannot force faith and testimony of truth. Even though we cannot force those things that matter most, there are ways we can help one another. That is, we can prepare hearts to obtain a deep and abiding testimony that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. This principle of first preparing hearts applies in a wide variety of personal relationships such as between friends and neighbors and co-workers, as well as husbands and wives and children. Let's look at some of the ways we can nurture a heart so that a testimony can take root and grow. If your home is a home where family members are loved unconditionally, regardless of behavior, then your home will have a spirit of warmth that will prepare the heart to receive the testimony of truth. When children and teenagers are loved because of who they are and not for how they behave, only then can we begin to make much-needed changes in behavior. For example, a teenager who feels accepted will be more likely to choose wholesome friends. Now you may think, I would like to love my family and friends and neighbors unconditionally, but sometimes it's extremely difficult. How can I learn to feel that pure love? Here are some guidelines. First, look for the good in each person and mention it in a sincere and consistent way. It's amazing how hearts can be softened, testimonies implanted, and relationships improve when we begin to give a daily portion of heartfelt appreciation. It has a marvelous effect on preparing the spirit. Even mentioning a little thing will have a positive effect. 
It usually isn't earth-shaking, just a simple act or attribute that will blossom and be multiplied if it is noticed. By the way, it may take you all day to find something, but it's there. <laughs> one day after school, one of our daughters came into a teenage son's room. It looked as if a big wind had blown through. He was sitting in the midst of it all. She felt the anger rising within, but remembered her resolution to look for the good. Searching desperately, her eye finally looked upward. Your ceiling's really clean, Adam. <laughs> she was able to say this quite honestly. He laughed, and he got the message, and he cleaned up the room. When marriage partners practice looking beyond the faults and failings of each other and peer into the deeper recesses of the heart, then we find a marvelous strengthening of marriage relationships. Another way of preparing the heart of someone is to create an atmosphere where judging is held in reserve until anger has subsided, until the hurt has dissipated, until all sides of an issue have been explored. Criticism is a destroyer of self-worth and esteem. It is demeaning and cutting. Some husbands expect perfection, and when this is not attained, their expressions turn to criticism. One wife wrote, Life can be such a lonely struggle for a woman in this situation. When there is one who reminds her continually of her failings, letting her know she's not living up to his expectations. How can a woman feel she'll ever become what our Heavenly Father expects of her when no matter how hard she tries, she never pleases her husband? It's heartbreaking how criticism can wound children and diminish their self-esteem. In one family home evening, home evenings were discontinued because members of the family became discouraged by the contention. The father, who may have been conscientious about his responsibility to help his family improve, unwisely used most of the time to find fault with the family members. Even though he made some effort to praise the children, it was not enough to offset his criticism. A feeling of censure and dislike for her roommate welled within a young college student's heart. When she made the effort to look a little further, she came to realize that the annoying habits practiced by her roommate were actually appropriate expressions of a different cultural heritage. A kind priesthood-bearer or any individual in a position to influence others realizes that the power to influence others for good comes through love and praise and patience. In relationships where there is forgetting and forgiving, joy and trust are nurtured. As you develop your capacity to love unconditionally, remember that listening is a part of showing love. If your home is a home where children are listened to, even when what they say doesn't seem important or you don't have time, then you're preparing hearts. Can we listen openly to a shocking experience without going into a state of shock ourselves, or without an immediate verbal overreaction. We all know there is a time to talk 
and a time to listen. To listen with patience to a young person's reasons for getting home late will bring you undying gratitude. Remember, you can listen to understand, not necessarily to agree. Oftentimes, we do our best teaching when we listen. Husband and wife relationships are nourished and strengthened as we listen to each other more. Hearts are softened. Finally, love is spoken in prayer. In your home, do children hear their parents pray for them in specific ways? For instance, when Cammie is sick, she can hear the family pray she'll have the Lord's healing influence. When Cameron needs a job, it will help him to hear the prayers of his family express confidence in him. If in your home children hear their parents pray for each other daily, then your home is a faith-building home. In it, hearts can be changed, and those who live there may become the children of Christ. Following the marvelous words of instruction by King Benjamin, as they are recorded in the first few chapters of Mosiah, we learn that he sent among them, desiring to know of his people, if they believed the words which he had spoken unto them. At the conclusion of this marvelous two days of general conference, I would hope, if we were asked, our response to such a question would be as was theirs in that day. For they said, Yea, we believe all the words which thou hast spoken unto us. And also we know of their surety and truth because of the Spirit of the Lord Omnipotent, which has wrought a mighty change in us or in our hearts, that we have no more disposition to do evil but to do good continually. And we are willing to enter into a covenant with our God to do His will and to be obedient to His commandments. And He said unto them, and now, because of the covenant which ye have made, ye shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day he hath spiritually begotten you. For ye say that your hearts are changed through faith on his name. Therefore ye are born of him and have become his sons and his daughters. And under this head are ye made free, I would that ye should take upon you the name of Christ, that ye should be obedient unto the end of your lives. To this, brothers and sisters, I add my testimony of the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Savior, and He is our Redeemer, and He lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My dear brothers and sisters, <clears throat> there is a feeling of deep appreciation in my soul this afternoon as we worship together. On behalf of the members of the Church in Asia, where we are now serving, I extend their love to President Benson and to the other leaders that they have come to know and love, and to all of the members of the Church everywhere. It is a joy to serve among them. I also express my love and appreciation to my family and my aging parents for their unswerving support. 
When I measure myself against the enormity of the work before us, an overwhelming sense of humility washes over me. I have come to know that the work of the salvation of mankind is beyond the capacity of any man. It is indeed the work of God. One of the best-known parables of the Savior is the story we have come to know as the Good Samaritan. As related by Luke, a certain lawyer tempted Jesus, saying, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In New Testament times, a lawyer was the equivalent of a scribe who was by profession a student and teacher of the law, including the written law of the Pentateuch and the traditions of the elders. This learned man sought either to test the Lord concerning his knowledge of the law or to display his own. The Savior responded with a question, What is written in the law? How readest thou? The scholar responded, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. The answer to the inquiry was solicited from his own mouth through the questioning of the Lord, who then directed him to live in accordance with what he knew. However, the scholar was not satisfied with so simple a response. Luke records that the learned man, willing to justify himself, asked a further question of the Lord. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered by telling a story. A certain man went down to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his remnant and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at that place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And then on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Understanding of this parable is improved when we recall that the work of the ministry in the sanctuary was assigned to the tribe of Levi. The Levites' duty was to assist the priest in their religious services. Likewise, the essential responsibility of a priest was to serve as a mediator between his people and God by representing them officially in worship and sacrifice. The people of Samaria consisted of a mixed population of Israelites and Gentiles. The Jews despised them. The priest and the Levite refused aid to the half-dead man who was in obvious need and even distanced themselves from him by walking on the other side. It was the despised Samaritan who had compassion on the wounded fellow. He tenderly bound up his wounds, administered soothing oil, disinfected his wounds, placed him upon his own beast, 
and took him to an inn and stayed with him overnight. He then paid the cost of his care and assured the host that whatever more was spent would be repaid. The Savior then asked a further question of the scholar. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was the neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? The lawyer was caught in his own cunning, but accurately answered, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. This was the second time in this brief conversation the scholar of religious law was instructed by the Savior to live in accordance with his knowledge of the principles. I presume that most of us have visualized this parable as requiring our aid to an injured person, even a stranger, who is in need because of an injury or sickness. The beauty of the parables of the Lord is that they have many applications, and thus their teaching value is unending. I would like to suggest an application of the principles taught in this parable to a current setting. There are many of God's children who are wounded or sick in spirit. Many have once enjoyed fellowship with the body of the saints, but for one reason or another are now on the roadside. They are the less active among us. Generally, we know who they are and have association with them in various settings. But because they are not physically sick or injured, we too often play the part of the priest or the Levite and walk by on the other side. In this dramatic parable, Jesus contrasted the response of the two respected religionists with that of a despised citizen of Samaria. There is at least a scintilla of similarity here to an elder's president a high priest group leader, a member of the bishopric or a home teacher, and the less active brother or sister who has fallen inactive by the wayside. Perhaps we do not despise them, but we sometimes ignore them or otherwise disregard them. Each of us can be a good Samaritan by dealing compassionately with these neglected brothers and sisters. We can bind up their spiritual wounds by rendering needed service pouring in the soothing oil of friendship and supplying the soul-healing balm of genuine brotherly and sisterly love. We can set them in our own automobiles and accompany them to our homes and places of worship, devote the necessary time and attention to warmly fellowship them. The Good Samaritan spent the night with his wounded friend and stayed with him until satisfied that he was on his way to recovery. Similarly. We ought to become close enough to these less active brothers and sisters to truly become their friends and support and sustain them while they spiritually heal. The parable also teaches that a little sacrifice and investment of one's time and money may be necessary. Such healing care should not be given out of duty but rendered out of a full heart. Indeed, even the lawyer seemed to catch the spirit of the Lord's teachings in the parable because it was he who defined a neighbor as he that showed mercy. Most of us are acquainted with uh, someone who is spiritually ill or wounded, lying on the roadside half dead, and who desperately needs the assistance of a good LDS brother or sister, that is, a Latter-day uh, Samaritan. 
Our prophet has repeatedly reminded us that rescuing the less active is one of our greatest challenges of service. I recount a simple parable as told through an interpreter by a Sunday school president in Hong Kong. An enterprising turkey gathered the flock together and, following instructions and demonstrations, taught them how to fly. All afternoon they enjoyed soaring and flying and the thrill of seeing new vistas. After the meeting, all of the turkeys walked home. It is not our understanding of the principles of the gospel that bring the blessings of heaven, but the living of them. I pray that each of us will develop a receptive and understanding heart that will motivate us to seek out a less active brother or sister and truly become a good Latter-day Samaritan. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Our Heavenly Father loves us dearly and watches over us in all our needs and cares, following us through life step by step. He established the plan for us as His children to come to earth and to continue our progress, which we began at His side, exercising our free agency and making our own decisions beyond his presence. But not having him with us does not mean that he has left us alone. He is concerned about each of us during this provisionary period. He provides us a savior, a redeemer, a shepherd. He has also given us the opportunity of having a constant companion, the Holy Ghost and the scriptures and teachings of living prophets. We are not alone. He attempts to teach us in all things. But the most important teachings, aside from the scriptures, we receive through our own lives and experiences. These are the most important because they affect us directly and they touch us personally. In fact, those which teach us the most are those which are the most difficult challenges or trials for us as individuals. This is when, if we are susceptible to the Spirit and have faith, we can see the hand of God reaching out personally to each of His children. Problems for, form an important part of our lives. They're, they are placed in our path in order to overcome them not to be overcome by them. We must master them, not let them master us. Every time we overcome a challenge, we grow in experience, self-assuredness, and in faith. In the 100-meter hurdles race, runners must jump over hurdles placed in their path. The hurdles are not there so that a runner will come to them and stop and discourage go back to the starting line. They are not there to make him crash. The beauty and excitement of this race is to jump of the, of the, over the hurdles to overcome the obstacles.
If we understand the importance of the obstacles in our individual lives, we begin to see them in a positive light as true challenges to overcome. Young people on a mission learn this. I have seen many of them bear their testimonies as they leave their missions, thankful for wonderful problems. Challenges are true opportunities to obtain blessings which are received by overcoming true faith and discerning what the Spirit and the Savior want to teach us. Many people complain or murmur when trials, illness, accidents, loss of employment, or death come. They say, why me? This is unfair. Or they become, become so depressed that they suffer breakdowns from which it is difficult to recover. Another reason for our trials is tucked in Doctrine and Covenants 29:39, And it must needs to be that the devil should tempt the children of men, or they could not be agents unto themselves. For if they never should have bitter, they could not know the sweet. A short time ago, our family had the opportunity to be tucked. It was a painful trial, but it became a sweet experience. Last December, my wife and I were together with our three daughters. The oldest is married and lives in the state of Delaware. She came to visit us with her husband and three little children. The youngest for her, of her children is David, 15 months old, who is also the youngest of our four grandchildren. The days of their visit were beautiful and unforgettable. We enjoyed ourselves immensely as a family and it was an opportunity to get to know a David who we, whom we had only seen at birth. David is an extremely sweet child, the best I have ever known. He never cries, even when sick or in pain. He is independent, but very loving, a special spirit. Those days together came to an end, and my daughter's family returned home. Two days after they arrived, tragically, David had to be taken to the hospital, and four hours later, he died. My wife and I immediately left to be with our children at this difficult time. We flew all night, and it was painful for us to talk about what had happened. We spent long waking hours in talk and prayer. I didn't know how I could comfort our children. What I could, I say, when I myself felt such deep pain. So I prayed. A great deal, and a loving father came to my aid. The answers came one by one, and the appropriate time, fulfilling the Lord's promise. Learn of me, and listen to my words, Walk in the meekness of my spirit, and you shall have peace in me. We met our children who were in deep mourning. They were suffering so intensely that their pain did not allow them to see the purposes and teachings. They are faithful members of the church, but, but as a young people, they never expected anything so devastating. 
My wife and I shared the answers that we had, and they, upon understanding and accepting them, began to receive further answers, additional teachings, which broke peace to their hearts. Barely, barely, I say unto you, if you desire a further witness, cast your mind upon the night that you cried unto me in your heart, that you might know concerning the truth of these things. Did I not speak peace to your mind concerning this matter, the matter? What greater witness can you have done from God? The sense of pain and suffering diminished, leaving in its place sweet feelings from spirit. I was amazed, amazed, amazed at the way our children went through the difficulty of funeral with such calmness and sweetness. They showed great strength and even comforted another relatives and friends. How was this wonderful change made possible? Because we realized that God lives and as our Father, He loves us. He doesn't want us to suffer any harm. If David went away, it was because as a special spirit, he had no need to remain longer in, in this life. We realize that David is needed in another place. It was a blessing to know him and to have him in our family. We have not lost him. We will, we will to be able to see him again. We should remember fondly the time that we spent with David. He taught us what it means to be pure and clean before God, and he is an example for all of us. We need to place our lives in proper perspective in order to be worthy to see him again. Because of him, we think more about life beyond the veil and have been taught to recognize that that is truly important in this life and the life to come, keeping our families united eternally. So many blessings, so many teachings. We changed and grew during that time. How grateful we are to our Father in heaven for this experience. A few days after David left us, my daughter learned that she was pregnant again. So much love from our Father. Additional teachings. I testified that our teacher, our shepherd, is Christ. Our best friend who clears up all our doubts. He heals our wounds and turns our pain into a sweet experiences. I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.